Welcome to our Indigenous Business Leadership Podcast. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor at BIB, and we're broadcasting today from the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This episode is part of a four-part series we're running this week to coincide with the publication of BIB's inaugural Indigenous business magazine, McCook P. Selim. The magazine was edited by Chastity Davis Alphonse, who is co-hosting this series. She is the founder of Chastity Davis Consulting. Welcome back to the show. Such a pleasure to have you joining me throughout this series. Thank you, Haley. Happy to be here. Now, this show focuses on Indigenous leadership, entrepreneurship, and reconciliation. Our guest today is Kim Baird, who served Tawasin First Nation as chief for six consecutive terms. She's the owner of Kim Baird Strategic Consulting. She's also a board member with a number of organizations, including Canada Infrastructure Bank and BC Indigenous Business Investment Council. Last year, she was installed as the third chancellor of Kwantlen Polytechnic University, her alma mater. Kim has been recognized with the Order of British Columbia and the Order of Canada, the National Aboriginal Women in Leadership Distinction Award, and also as one of Canada's most powerful women to name just a few recognitions she's received. Welcome to the show and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. So this week we've been focusing on the topic of economic reconciliation, including as part of this series. And I'm curious from your perspective, in what areas do you think progress has been made on that front when it comes to economic reconciliation? And in what areas do you think progress has yet to be made? Uh, Well, I view economic reconciliation as such a broad topic. Uh, So for sure, there increased Indigenous participation there is increased Indigenous participation in the economy, whether it be through the development of impact benefit agreements in different areas for major projects, crossing territories, whether it be business development uh, within entrepreneurs and communities, whether it be the rise of economic development corporations for First Nations. Um, I think I see an increase in all those things And I think I also see an increase in sort of the fundamentals or the prerequisites of building an economy for First Nations, which has a lot to do with governance and uh, that kind of thing as well, and uh, enabling frameworks that um, enhance the Indian Act. So uh, I've seen over my career quite an increase of uh, activity in all those fronts, Um, but the gap is so huge so I don't want uh, anyone to think that the, the increased activity is anywhere near enough for what it should be to advance economic reconciliation. And just on the topic of that gap, would you mind sharing some of the biggest barriers or outstanding issues from your perspective that still exist and what needs to be done to close that gap? Well, I've always viewed it looking at the economic, well, the socioeconomic conditions of communities as my measure. Um, But if you want to look at any measure, there's a huge gap, whether it's infrastructure and those socioeconomic conditions I I spoke of um, or uh, any number of things that uh, First Nations in particular are far behind on. So um, I think... uh, Economic development is one tool to help communities kind of overcome that, uh, but only one tool, in my opinion. Thank you, Kim. Um, 
I'm curious on the topic also of economic reconciliation, if you have your own vision of uh, what this would look like if we were able to realize it um, in Canada, or if you can comment for your own nation or for First Nations broadly. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting uh, for Tawasin, we uh, became self-governing as a big uh, prerequisite to building our economy. Um, We just had too many barriers otherwise. So to me, that jurisdiction is kind of paramount uh, as far as being the ultimate uh, enabler and putting First Nations on equal footing with other uh, communities, uh, whether it be municipalities or other governments. Um, so for for me, uh, I think that replacing the Indian Act at different communities' paces with better tools for them to manage their lands and territories, their resources and their finances are all important part of uh, economic reconciliation. Um, Because without that better framework for governing yourselves, it's uh, really hard with poor tools to maximize the opportunities you have and to best manage the benefits you receive in my opinion and experience we had a chief crystal smith join this series too and one of the things she shared was there really wasn't a roadmap for some of the things that they wanted to do they really had to break ground and i know you helped negotiate the first urban modern treaty when you were chief of tuasin first nation and i'm curious what that was like for you i mean was it a similar position was there any roadmap to follow or was it really figuring out for yourselves and breaking new ground well there weren't a lot of modern treaties to be in that of course there's the nisca in bc which it's uh the tuasin agreement is similar to that but the implementation side there were no real examples were the kind of first really urban uh, First Nation with the uh, kind of geographical considerations we have for economic development. Um, So there was no roadmap. And, you know, I remember when I completed the treaty vote because we completed the negotiation and then we had to ratify it. And after it was ratified, uh, it turned out I had pneumonia in both lungs, two parts of one lung and one in in the other. And it took me, like, I had pushed so hard to get to that point uh, with babies in tow and stuff that uh, I had to convalesce. And while I was, so I took a month off to uh, overcome pneumonia. And I was kind of on my couch a lot, looking up the ceiling going, what have I done? What are we now? What right? Like to shift from negotiations to the next phase was extremely daunting. And so I called up um, one of my mentors and advisors and uh, asked him to help. Uh, one of the few things I did on my um, my month off or whatever, so that I could get back to the office with some sort of plan to work from. So he created a roadmap with like, I think 10 different projects um, that looked at the institutional development we had to do, 
the everything we had to do. And I turned that from 10 to 40 projects and implemented them all in a 15 month period to really hit the ground running with self-governance for Tuolsen. So um, that I am happy to say Tuolsen continues to share information about our experience, our approach, understanding there's no cookie cutter approach to any of this, uh, of course, but if anyone can learn from our experience in any way, shape or form, I, I think that's uh, another huge benefit of um, Tuolsen's experience, being able to, to share that with others. Wow, Kim, that's amazing. Um, just what you were able to accomplish, um, you know, getting your community to a yes vote um, in the first urban and negotiating the first urban treaty um, and within 15 months implementing uh, 40 um, projects and overcoming pneumonia. And I do remember like um, seeing you at uh, meetings and conferences with babies and kids. Um, and so just also managing um, being a mother as well. And so you just have so many wonderful contributions uh, to your nation and to this world. You were also the youngest woman elected chief of the Sawasan First, First Nation. So what were some of the most important leadership lessons you learned in your first um, term or two as chief? Yeah, I mean, I was the second woman, but the youngest woman for sure. And I had, um, the, my predecessor was the first woman chief and she had a much different style than me. And so that transition was challenging because she found my style lacking because I wasn't like her. And it really shook my confidence. Um, and it took me a while to realize that I could be authentic, be myself and be effective. So that was the toughest lesson I learned. And uh, I think I'm still learning it, if you know what I mean. So it wasn't just in the first term, but I would also say some of the challenges I faced, because uh, I was 28 when I was elected, was kind of people taking me seriously. And my age was on top of being an Indigenous woman, really kind of had some dynamics there that were very interesting. Um, and I guess I just resigned myself to the fact that people would underestimate me and they continue to. Um, and so I just become extra satisfied when I surprise them, right? So <laughs> that, that's kind of my way of coping is not letting that hold me back and to really relish surprise looks on faces when they realize they've underestimated me. Anyways. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> And interesting that people still underestimate you with um, the long list of accomplishments that you have um, and uh, would love to have a conversation about that um, at another time. Um, but just really, uh, there's what would your advice be to young Indigenous um, people who are considering, considering going into politics? Do you have... Um, you know, a couple of key things or just an overall um, 
uh, you know, template for Indigenous people to consider when they're, they're looking to go into politics? Well, I think it's not just for Indigenous people, but the main thing I think about is that if you see change that needs to be made, you have to find ways to make it. And you can't just complain about it and expect others to do it. When you, when you see what needs to be done, you need to do it and you need to find ways to do that. And being an elected leader is one way of doing that. Uh, becoming an expert in other ways is through post-secondary education is another way of doing that. Um, and I just think that we really, really can't just expect others to make the hard changes that have to be made for our, our communities and that we have to pitch in, right? And find a way to do that. I think also um, in my experience, the more diverse voices you include in decision-making processes, the better. So no matter what your personality type, your leadership style, your um, kind of philosophical outlook on life, I think all of that is great contribution to a broader table to make change in my my personal experience. So, you know, be yourself and do what you need to do to try and make a difference and you won't regret it. And, and at least I haven't, right? So that's not to say there aren't um, trials and tribulations. I think losing my election was one of the most humbling things I've ever experienced especially because I'd put in a lot of my heart and soul into the work I did in my community. Um, but would I change any of it? No, not, not at all, right? So being able to help people and make a difference, uh, it's a real calling for some. And if you're thinking about it, you know, do it. And um, you can spend a lot of time waiting for the perfect conditions to do something uh but there are never perfect conditions in my my experience so if you're inclined get out there and and learn about it and and do it i think those are such wise words sometimes if you wait for the perfect moment you'll be waiting forever and you'll never end up doing something uh, i want to ask you kim when you look at your community and compare it to say where it was economically in 1999 when you were first elected through to 20 plus years later? I mean, how much change has taken place? What do you really notice? It's uh, mind boggling actually to think, you know, I, I saw about three years ago, the ribbon cutting of the very nice park uh, that uh, our community was able to open that, I never had the revenues to, to do that, right? So um, I think Tawasin's invested upwards of $150 million in our own infrastructure. Um, so like the quality of life is improving. The community amenities is improving. We just opened a brand new state-of-the-art youth center that um, just shows our love and gratitude for our youth. It's absolutely amazing. And the investment in education, I mean, these are all things that are gonna have multi-generational impacts. So I think it's super exciting time for Tawasin, but 
the change management is still challenging. It's not smooth. It's not like um, utopia or anything like that. But I just take great hope in, in the signals I see, right? My oldest daughter is graduating this year and she's been accepted at the University of Victoria. Um, so she's, uh, all my kids expect to, have, to go to a post-secondary institution uh, because I raised them to, to think that way. So these are all shifts um, in our community as we want to see better education results for our kids and, and beyond. So yeah, I think um, things are a lot different and some things are still super challenging. Multi-generational impacts of colonization are gonna take many generations to overcome, I think. But we have more and more people um, getting help and we have resources to help them. So those are all good signs, right? Um, the final metrics and all that, again, will take time, but I am very hopeful for Tuasen's future. Um, we've been discussing a lot about uh, your accomplishments um, and uh, the successes of your nation. What would you define as your greatest success or your greatest accomplishment in, in your life? Well, I think one of the things I'm most proud of professionally would be the fact that um, over 90% of eligible members participated in the treaty vote at Tawasson. That level of engagement leading up to that was extreme to enable the confidence of Tawasson people to vote on a 250-page legally drafted contract that forever changes their rights. And 70% voted in favor. Um, it's not 100% uh, consensus, but um, it really was a strong sort of uh, direction and a leap of faith to, to move forward, to leave the Indian Act behind, uh, all those things. So I, I'm proud of that level of engagement that people felt confident enough to participate on something that important. And that was the culmination of, you know, 12 years of, of engagement work uh, that moment. So uh, I think that's probably the thing I'm most proud of. And then of course, personally, my three daughters, I'm very proud of them and very happy I, I took that um, risk as well, becoming a parent, right? It's so exciting too that the, the eldest is off to post-secondary and you yourself are also in a way back at post-secondary as chancellor of Kwantlen Polytechnic University. Uh, that's relatively recent, installed just last year. What does it feel like to be the chancellor of the university that many years ago you attended as a student? Yeah, I mean, what an amazing sort of uh, turn of events, I guess, you know what I mean? Uh, to come from a background that was typical to many First Nation youth with alcohol and uh, violence and continual moving everywhere to like, I'm surprised I graduated high school and went to college um, from that kind of background as an angry golf kid to uh, being a chancellor now, it's just kind of what a, what a mind trip, right? 
Uh, and I'm just really happy to support all youth in their quest for post-secondary education. Uh, I see the value in it. I see the return people get from it, from those uh, critical analytical skills to, you know, trades or careers, uh, or, you know, again, just, you know, having that experience. Um, and so to, to be in a role that, you know, it, it's ceremonial, but to think about how to better integrate indigenization of post-secondary institutions and stuff like and the the reception I've had has just been so absolutely welcoming uh it's been phenomenal it's been positive so far um although I haven't been able to do anything on campus yet because of COVID well uh I'll feel more um entrenched in the position when I can do in-person things I would think um but uh, I, I will end this topic by saying that the one really cool thing that I initiated was reaching out to other Indigenous chancellors. So we're trying to uh, convene all Indigenous chancellors uh, across the country to start chatting about what we might get up to. So uh, it's been Stephen Point and Judith Sayers and some others from other provinces, including Mary Sinclair. And it's, uh, I think it's gonna be extremely interesting and rewarding. That's so exciting, Kim, uh, to hear about that. And um, I've, I will continue to look for what comes out of your ch initiated chancellor uh, working group or committee <laughs> or whatever you're calling it. Um, you, you, it you've, talked about your your personal journey and overcoming um you know many obstacles and i know just from speaking with others that have been in leadership roles um, such as elected chief and then now you're leading on many boards and others um, what keeps you motivated or what inspires you to move through um, uh, the obstacles that you've faced in your life I don't know. I mean, everyone just finds a way forward, I think, right? So um, I'm a very determined person when I want to, when I have focus and want to complete something, um, it's pretty hard to determine uh, if it's something reasonable, right? So I think, you know, my quest when I was in college and started thinking about working for my community was to kind of understand why there is such huge gaps uh, in my community in the lower mainland and then challenge myself to do something about it and I guess um, that sort of social justice kind of drive uh, is really motivating and for me it's about helping Indigenous communities and how they express their self-determination. The Tuasan Treaty is not for everybody, but I think for any community trying to find a path forward for better outcomes for their citizens, uh, I think that's marvelous work. So I'm happy to help anybody who's doing that work 
I also work with companies that want to do proactive things in relation to Indigenous matters. And I advise government too on it through my consulting business. So like that's an important value to me is to, you know, always work on things that help Indigenous communities. And then the other thing it turns out is I'm, uh, I like to learn. So working on different projects and with different organizations really helps fulfill that need for uh, continually learning and growing. I feel like we've managed to cover quite a bit of ground today, but have also really only scratched the surface into digging into the experiences you've had as a leader and as a chief. Is there anything else you wanted to mention, Kim, while we uh, wrap up this segment? Any final thoughts? No, but congratulations on the series and uh, engaging in these dialogues. I think that there's not a lot of spaces to explore these topics. And uh, I think the way forward for reconciliation in Canada is safe spaces to uh, explore sensitive issues. And uh, it's forms like this that will help increase everyone's understanding on some of these topics. So thank you for the work you're doing. Well, thank you. And a huge credit to Chastity for helping BIB create those spaces with this podcast and our upcoming magazine. And Kim, thank you for joining us on this inaugural podcast. We're really appreciative. No problem. Joining us today as a guest is Kim Baird, the owner of Kim Baird Strategic Consulting, the former chief of Tuas and First Nation and current chancellor of KPU, my co-host Chastity Davis Alphonse, founder of Chastity Davis Consulting. Thank you so much for listening to this installment of our Indigenous Business Leadership Podcast. You can find more episodes in this series at BIV.com slash audio, and you can subscribe to us via your favorite podcast app by searching BIV today. Thanks again for joining us.